Due to the graphic nature of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. This podcast may contain, but is not limited to, strong language, sexual content, violence, and death. This podcast may not be suitable for listeners under 18. Hi, I'm Christina. And I'm Crystal. Welcome Welcome to to Crime Crime Night. Night. We wish everybody a happy Valentine's Day. And tonight's episode is about the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. The St. Valentine's Day Massacre is one of the most infamous massacres in America. Despite Al Capone being widely credited for the massacre, no one ever went to jail for the crime. The following is the most believed theory. Alphonse Gabriel Capone, better known as Al Capone, was born in Brooklyn, New York on January 17, 1899 to Gabriel and Therese Capone. Now, Gabriel and Therese were both born in Angri, which was a small commune outside of Naples in the province of Salerno. Now, Gabriel was a barber and Teresa was a seamstress. Al Capone was the fourth of nine children. His eldest brother was Vincenzo, and he actually later changed his name to Richard Hart and became a prohibition agent in Homer, Nebraska, and he was known to be a sharpshooter. So he turned out quite opposite of his brother. The Mm -hmm. second child was Raphael Ralph James. Uh, He also went by the nickname of Bottles and he actually took charge of Al Capone's beverage industries, both legal and illegal, early on in life. And he was also the front man of the Southside gang that Al Capone ran until he was imprisoned for tax evasion in 1932. The next son was Salvatore, also known as Frank. He also worked for Al Capone. He worked with him until his death on April 1st of 1924. The next brother was Umberto. He went by Albert. And he had a few brushes with the law in his younger years, but he eventually started going by the name of Albert James Royola and actually denied being a member of the family so he didn't really want anything to do with the criminal life either yeah that's understandable next was ermina and she actually died at the age of one it was common back then for Mm -hmm. yeah children to die young yes yeah they had didn't have the medical equipment that we have today so it was much more common for children to die at a young age Mm -hmm. and a lot of it seems like a lot of the cases that we've done in like older times had at least like one child that died at a very young age. Yeah, I think it's that's why they probably had so many children too because you didn't know if they're gonna right. you know how far they're gonna make it in life. Mm-hmm. And then was Ermino who went by John, and the last of the Capone boys was Matthew Nicholas who went by Maddie or Matt, and the last child was a daughter named Mafonda. Now, Al Capone grew up basically belonging to a, a street gang at a very young age. He dropped out of school in the sixth grade. Um, and then later on, when he was a little bit older, he joined the Five Point Gang in Manhattan. And he also worked at the Harvard Inn on Coney Island. And he was a bouncer there and a bartender. Now, the Harvard Inn was actually owned by a mobster named Frankie Yale. During his time at Harvard Inn in 1917, he received a large scar on his left cheek during a fight 
and that led to him being given the name of Scarface. Now, the fight ensued after Al himself actually insulted um, a female at the bar, and the brother retaliated and slashing his face, and he actually left three scars on his left cheek. Now, funny thing is, Al tried to pass off the scars as like a war wound. Mm-hmm. However, he was never in the military. So, so there's no way he got it from being at war. No. No, he did not. He just thought that that sounded like a better a better story than <laughs> saying that he got it in a bar fight, basically, is what it was. Now, Al Capone married an Irish Catholic woman named Mae Coughlin, and that was on December 30th of 1918. And then you're going to find out the irony of him marrying an Irish woman later on in this story. Now, May and Al actually went on to have one son. His name was Albert Francis Capone, and he was actually known as Sonny. So he went by the nickname Sonny. Now, the the couple actually remained married until Al Capone's death in 1947. So by 1920, Al Capone had moved to Chicago and some say that he moved there to lay low after um, he severely injured a rival gang member. Others say that he was actually recruited by Johnny Toriel, which was a former Brooklyn mobster who he had worked with previously when he was in New York. But once he did arrive in Chicago, he did work for Johnny under the authority of Big Jim Colissimo who was the mob boss of the Southside gang at that time. And Big Jim was eventually killed, leaving Johnny to take over. And it's actually thought that Johnny was the one who had ordered the hit with Frankie Yale, Al Capone's old boss, being the one that carried out the hit. So after Johnny took over, he actually appointed Al Capone as one of his key aides. In 1925, Johnny ended up retiring after he was nearly killed in a shootout right outside of his home. And that's when Al Capone took over as boss. It just sounds weird that he retired from being the mob boss. Yeah. I just, you never think that somebody retires from being in the mob. You just think that they die. Yeah, they Mm -hmm. usually get killed or die off or... Whatever, but you never really think of them retiring. I thought that was kind of interesting and funny. So when Al Capone became the boss of the Southside gang, he was able to grow it. And he actually referred to his gang as the Chicago Outfit. But it is commonly known as the Southside gang just because it probably had different names throughout the years. Mm -hmm. So it's just kind of referred to as the Southside gang and um, their rivals, the Northside gang. In 1926, Al Capone's shooters actually killed the Northside gang leader at the time, Jaime Weiss, and that left George Moran to take over. And George Moran was Al Capone's like number one rival. They had a lifelong, you know, rivalry between the two of them. They did not like each mm-hmm. other. And during the prohibition. Al Capone actually controlled speakeasies, bookie joints, gambling houses, brothels, horse and racetracks, nightclubs, distilleries, and breweries. That's a lot of stuff he 
Yeah. He was in charge. (laughs) Yeah. And it's actually reported that his endeavors made about $100 million a year with $60 million alone coming from alcohol distribution. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. And a hundred million in 1929 would be equivalent to 1.6 billion dollars today. So he was a very, very rich man from his his endeavors. And to they, think that he mm-hmm. dropped out in sixth grade, mm-hmm. and probably everybody thought he was never going to accomplish anything in his life or mm-hmm. be of anything because yes. he was a school dropout. And mm-hmm. here he went on to make 1.6 billion dollars a year. Mm-hmm. Although it was illegal, so yes, I mean... <laughs> it was illegal, but still, he went on to make a name of himself. Now, shortly after World War I ended, the 18th Amendment was passed by a Congress and sent to the states individually for ratification. There were actually only 48 states at this point, as Alaska and Hawaii were not actually part of the United States until the 1950s. And then the two states that actually rejected to sign the ratification was actually Connecticut and Rhode Island. So 46 out of the 48 states signed it. So that was that was a good good chunk. Mm-hmm. I wonder why the other two didn't. Because their leaders are probably alcoholics. <laughs> <laughs> well, back then, seems like everybody was. The 18th Amendment prohibited the manufacture, sales, or transportation of intoxicating liquor for beverage purposes. Although the amendment did not prohibit the consumption or the private possession or the production for personal consumption. Now, prohibition officially began on January 17th, 1920, which was ironically Al Capone's birthday when it took effect. So I thought that was kind of interesting. And then it lasted for 13, almost 14 years um, before it ended, and that was on December 5th of 1933. So prohibition actually did last quite a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, over a decade. Yeah, so. yeah. So I mean, that was that was a long time. Mm-hmm. Now, before prohibition, the average American actually drank 2.6 gallons of alcohol per year, which would actually equal out to like less than a glass of alcohol per week, like eight ounce glass. Mm-hmm. And today, an average American would consume slightly less than 2.3 gallons per year. So it's not much gotten less better, than but not, prior to yeah, not much. Yeah, it hasn't really changed too much. Yeah, yeah, it's gone down a little bit, but not a whole lot. Now, prohibition actually led to widespread gang warfare when the large American cities, such as Chicago being one of them, um, gangs were able to increase their profits by bootlegging, prostitution, illegal gambling, seems like anything that they could think of to make money that was not legal they tried yeah so it seems like prohibition just like kind of like they were trying to stop crime with it but it just kind of ramped it up in certain areas Mm -hmm. open the floodgates and they just went haywire so in chicago the two major gangs were the irish north side gang and the italian south side gang they kind of battled for you know territory on january 8th of 1929 pasquale known as patsy lalordo was a gangster who actually worked for the south side gang under al capone he was murdered in his chicago home by three men the men were believed to be james clark and brothers pete and frank gusenberg 
who worked for uh, Al Capone's rival and Northside gang leader, George, known as Bugs Moran. Now, six months prior to Patsy's death, Al Capone organized a moratorium on violence between the various Chicago gangs to cool down public debate because things were starting to heat up. I mean, the mm-hmm. police, you know, had them on their radar and people just talking knew, about them and knew you, who they oh, were. Yeah, and- knew a lot of information. So they just kind of want to basically get like the police and whatnot off of them for a while. So they made a truce to kind of mm-hmm. try and quell the police from stopping their businesses. So the murder of Patsy actually broke the truce between the North and South gang. And within one week of Patsy's murder, the Gusenberg brothers doubled down, attempting to murder Jack Machine Gun McGurn, another one of Al Capone's men. Now with the truce being broke again, Al Capone decided to assassinate George Moran. So he was going for the head man. Mm-hmm. He wasn't yeah, going to so mess he, around with he his was little... Pissed off. He wasn't going to mess around mm-hmm. with his little sidekicks like mm-hmm. like George Moran was messing around with. Well, he, he probably gonna... assumed that um, George Moran ordered the hit. Yeah. Or had to, you know was behind it because he was the leader. So That's what one would think, but you never mm-hmm. know. Yeah. Now, Al and Jack put together a hit team that consisted of four men. It was Frank Burke, James Ray, John Scalisi, and Albert Anselmi. Now, the Southside gang used a bootlegger to lure George Morand to a Chicago garage to purchase whiskey at a bargain price. Now, the meetup was supposed to be scheduled for 10.30 a.m. on February 14, 1929, Valentine's Day. When Valentine's Day came, the Northside gang members began arriving to the garage as the Southside gang associates were observing them. They met in a cold, unheated garage on the north side of Chicago, which was located at 2122 North Clark Street. And the garage that they actually met in was a garage that George Moran regularly used to do illegal business in. So it was a place that the north side gang members were comfortable and familiar with. So when the last of the members to arrive, Albert Weinshank arrived. The observers actually mistook him for George Moran and alerted the gang members to take action as they were, you know, waiting for the head boss to get there before they put their plan into action. So at this point, a black Cadillac outfitted like a police car complete with a siren and rifle rack actually pulled up and four men exited the car two men fred burke and james ray were dressed in police uniforms and the other two john scalisi and albert anselmi were in normal suits so the fake police actually burst into the smc Cartage Company garage, which is what it was called at the time, making it seem like police were raiding the business, so it didn't seem, like, too suspicious. Which was probably common for for places to be raided back then, especially if they were yeah, known. during Prohibition, yeah. Yeah, known yeah for mob places, yeah. Mob action to be mm-hmm. taking place at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So the seven men in the garage actually cooperated with the policemen and you know they weren't really worried about getting arrested. They knew that George Moran would bail them out later that day so they really didn't have you know an issue so they just kind of fouled the instructions that the police officers it was gave prob them. probably a common thing. Mm -hmm. They got arrested, they were mm -hmm. get bailed out right away. And I'm sure that they had a lot of like political and police and stuff like that. On oh yeah. Payroll, yeah, corrupt so to speak. Police. yeah, corruption yeah. was a big issue in the police force back then. Yeah. As yeah. Well. So they probably were just like, Ugh, here we go again. Mm -hmm. Go down to jail. Yes. It was probably out. more of an inconvenience than anything <laughs> else for them. Yeah, especially since they had this meeting at ten thirty with the to, mm -hmm. you know by the the bargain liquor so to speak mm -hmm. so they're probably like oh god let's just it get was, it over yeah. with so we can get this and get back here and yeah yeah they were probably just like whatever just get it over with so um the police disarmed the men and lined them up against a whitewash wall that was in the garage so after everybody was lined up, the fake police officers signaled for the other two men to come in. So once they entered, that's when they opened fire on the seven men that they had lined up against the wall. And autopsies indicate that about 160 rounds were actually fired at the seven men. The men used Thompson submachine guns, revolvers, and shotguns. So they used a variety of weapons when so they came in to do yeah. some damage. Yeah. Mm -hmm. After they unloaded all their weapons, the two men in the uniform actually pointed guns at the two men in suits and walked them out with the men in suits holding their hands up. So it looked like they were being arrested. And they kind of just put them in the police car and then took off so that way witnesses in the area wouldn't think anything of it they'd be like oh police handled the situation they yeah dealt with there was they probably would think oh there was a police a shootout when the police went in to arrest them and they came out with the two and they probably didn't think you know whether anybody was injured or not they probably were like used to shootouts between the yeah. mob and, and they were the probably police. so used to people going in and out of that garage mm -hmm. too i would think yeah that it probably didn't even mm -hmm. yeah yeah, so this was yeah. mob territory, so they probably didn't think too much of it. It's probably just they're probably afraid to speak out. Yeah, that if too. any of them were mm -hmm. were coherent of what was going on, they were probably like, I just mind my own business. Yeah, I don't mm -hmm. want to be involved in this. Yeah, because you know, who knows what the mob will mm -hmm. do if they find out that you talked mm -hmm. to you or your family. Now, George Moran was actually reported to be late. Now he seemed to be late to everything that had some importance to it. So he was late showing up to the garage. So he was not there when the massacre happened. Which was lucky on his part, I guess. Yep. Guess yep. that lateness worked out for him. Sometimes it, it, it works out to your benefit. <laughs> so there was actually three other members that were arriving late to the, to the garage. So there was actually a total of four of them that were supposed to have been there and didn't make it there yet. So they kind of seen what was going on, seen the cop car out there, and figured that they there was a raid going on. So they're like, forget this. We don't want to be any part of this. So they just kept driving past. So yeah, they're that, probably like, oh, we'll have to go bail them out later. Yep, yep. That, that worked out in their benefit, though. Mm -hmm. Now, witnesses were alerted to the commotion and watched the men get in the Cadillac and speed off. So once again, probably not an uncommon occurrence within that area. 
stuff like this probably happened. I don't know how frequent, but I'm sure it happened. Now, one of the men that were shot, his name was John May, and he had a dog named Highball, and he was always with them at the shop. However, the dog at the time did not get harmed, so he was still alive after, you know, after the police left, and he started to whine and howl. Now, this alerted two women that lived really close to the garage and it kind of bothered them that the dog kept on whining and barking mm -hmm. and stuff like that especially yeah. after they probably heard gunfire they're probably wondering what is going on yeah yeah that seemed suspicious like they probably hear gunfire a lot but the dog was something a little more out of the ordinary for mm -hmm. them to have heard yeah now these women actually gave some information to the authorities just kind of doing their due diligence and six days later after the shooting these women are contacted by mail by a letter stating that they basically advise them to keep their mouths shut. But at this point, they've already talked, talked to, to the, the police, police. so mm -hmm. it's not going to make a difference at this point. Mm -hmm. So the, the I guess they could retract their statements. Yeah, they can, but it's already out there, and mm -hmm. it's going to be more believable of them if they go to if they go to retract the story. It's going to make it seem like they were being mm -hmm. yeah. Like they went to talk to the police after receiving and they the were letter. forced, yeah, and they were forced to mm -hmm. withdraw their information. Now, one of the women actually left town after she received this letter, which I don't blame her one bit. Mm -hmm. she, get the fuck out of here! Mm -hmm. She's like, uh, I've had enough Peace of this. Out. I am out. Yeah, I'm outie. So the Saint Valentine Day massacre ended with this feud between Al Capone's Southside gang. In the George Moran's Northside Gang. The first victim was Peter Gusenberg, who went by Goosey, and he was born September 26th of 1889 in Chicago to Peter and Myrtle Gusenberg. He was a frontline enforcer for the Northside Gang, and he had approximately 11 entry exit wounds after the massacre. His brother, Frank Gusenberg, who went by Hawk, who was born on October 11th, 1892, also in Chicago, was there. And like his brother, he was an enforcer for the Northside Gang. And he actually initially survived the shooting and he ended up dying in the hospital about three hours later. It is believed that he refused to give information. However, some reports also state that he did uh, state that police were the ones who came in and shot them. So I don't know if he actually believed they were police or if he realized that they're fake police after that. Um, but he would... did survive for quite a while and he had about nine bullet wounds. I think that he would have recognized the, the members that came in from Al Capone's gang because I'm sure they've had run-ins before. Mm -hmm. So I wonder... Unless they used, purposely used people that they weren't maybe familiar with that like yeah. weren't really high up in the gang so they wouldn't like have... Like the rookies kind known, of? Yeah, somebody yeah. who wasn't a familiar face. The next victim was Albert Kachalik and he was actually born on February 25th in 1887 to John and Anna Kachelik in Germany. Now he was German national. He was George Moran's second in command and he also had a reputation of a hardened killer. 
He also was George Moran's brother-in-law. He sometimes went by the alias James Jim Clark. Now, Albert actually received approximately nine wounds during the shootout. The next victim was Adam Hare, also known as Frank. Now, he was born on October 17th of 1889 in Chicago. And he was the bookkeeper and business manager for George Moran. He also was the leaseholder on the garage, the SMC Cartage Company, where the shootout actually took place. Adam used the aliases of Frank Snyder and Hayes. So Adam actually had approximately 15 entry and exit wounds when they did the autopsy. The next victim was Dr. Reinhardt Schwimmer. And he was actually an ophthalmologist who had abandoned his practice in order to gamble on horse racing. He was associated with the Northside gang and was more like a wannabe gangster. So he wasn't actually a gang member, but he hung out with them because he just he wanted to be associated with He just yeah, wanted the, the power yeah. and whatnot that um, they would give. And he actually had no criminal past or any criminal records or anything he had never been arrested before um it's just so weird that he threw all that away all that away yeah i mean good career threw it away for to hang out with mobster it cost of his marriage and everything too i mean it's yeah yeah and he actually was said to have boasted that he could have um anyone taken for a ride or killed shortly before the massacre happened he also boasted that he was in the alcohol racket although he was just kind of associate he wasn't really involved <laughs> as much as he made it seem i think in his head he was more involved than he actually was yeah. i mean he he made it sound good mm -hmm. and he actually had the most bullet wounds he had 25. I wonder, because it seems like the other ones roughly have around the same amount. Did they personally go more towards him for certain reasons? Or was it that everybody else kind of got down and knew how to deal with the situation and yeah. him not being an actual mobster didn't know what to do and ended up getting himself shot a lot. Next was Albert Weinshank and he actually uh, managed several cleaning and dying operations for the north side gang and he had a strong resemblance to george moran and his looks are actually what allegedly set the massacre going before george got there um they believe he was mistaken for george moran and that's why the shootout happened prior to george's arrival and he actually had about nine bullet wounds now, John May was born on September 28, 1894 in Chicago, Illinois, and he was an ex-safe blower. So he was definitely he already a, a criminal. He definitely right. had a criminal past. Mm -hmm. He wasn't part of the mob, but he had a criminal past, which is probably where his association came. Mm -hmm. They yeah. probably had, that would be had a good skills person to have on your payroll, that so to speak. they, you know, could use. Yeah. Good to have them on your payroll. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Now, he occasionally worked as a car mechanic for the North Side Gang, and he was actually working on a, one of George Moran's vehicle the morning of the massacre. Now, he had approximately 10 entry and exit wounds. And so, he was probably only there, you know, because he was working on the car. He probably wasn't 
had anything to do with anyone else. He was just doing his doing thing. His thing. Mm-hmm. He was on uh, the payroll, so he was making $50 a week, which was a lot of money back then. Yeah. So they paid him very well to be their mechanic. Mm-hmm. So, but I'm sure it was uh, beneficial for them to have a mechanic that also happened to have safe cracking abilities. <laughs> I know, right? It's a two for one deal there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, John is the one who had the German Shepherd dog in the name Piebald. And he was actually tied to a bumper of one of the cars at the time of the massacre. Probably so if people were going in and out, he wouldn't run out the door. Yeah. yeah. And who knows if he was trained to be a guard dog or anything like mm-hmm. that. So if some random person would have came in to have their vehicle checked on or something, mm-hmm. they probably didn't want him running around mm-hmm. now although that the dog was not actually wounded during the massacre he actually had to be euthanized mm-hmm. later on because of the trauma that he suffered mm-hmm. while being there during the massacre so yeah. i'm I sure mean, he was never the same again and he probably didn't want to be around people and probably became aggressive, aggressive and, yeah. yeah and i mean he experienced trauma so people don't realize animals experience trauma just like people do mm-hmm. but yes. they handle it kind of same way we yeah, do I mean, but people, they don't he he doesn't know anybody he probably acted out as as a yeah. person would too that you know yeah people tend to you know act out after situations like that because yeah. you don't know how to react yeah i just feel bad for the for all of them but the mm-hmm. dog too especially because the dog was just there he had nothing to do with right it. he just happened to <laughs> be owned there. by someone that was there <laughs> Police Commissioner Russell and State's Attorney Swanson searched for evidence at the crime scene, and a special coroner's jury was enlisted by Coroner Budinson to investigate the massacre. One of the nation's foremost forensic scientists, Dr. Calvin Goodard, was also hired to examine the ballistics evidence. Dr. Goodard compared the bullets from the crime scene to um, test bullets from various firearms, and he actually determined that the 45 caliber bullets from the crime scene matched two Thompson submachine guns that were previously confiscated from a rural Michigan home of a notorious mob hitman. So they used weapons that had been confiscated by police previously hmm. so that is that is very interesting hmm. but that doesn't necessarily say it was the police that did it it could still be the mob because they had ties with the police so they could easily get their hands on evidence like that as well right so you never know i mean you can't really believe everything's going on because if they mm-hmm. want to try to pin this case on somebody they'll they can pin it on them i mean it's I mean, there's a ton of different ways that those guns could have ended up at that crime scene. Mm -hmm. Now, the lead investigator for the state's attorney's office indicated that he could name at least 50 motives behind this crime. But they all kept pointing back to Al Capone. And he had both the motives and the means to commit this heinous crime. Now, Al Capone did have an alibi of his whereabouts. And he denied the knowledge of this cold-blooded killing. He was supposedly vacationing at his retreat in Palm Island, Florida at the time to escape the bitter cold from Chicago. However, not many believed him. 
that he didn't have any ties in it. I mean, you, you don't have to be in the same place to. Yeah, it doesn't it matter happen. that you're there. You have plenty of people that you could give them Orders. the order and they'll do it for right. you. You, you know, don't have to be present. Us. Right. Now, although the reason behind the massacre was never actually confirmed, it is believed that Al Capone ordered the hit in order to get rid of George Moran. Now, once again, they have been been rival enemies for a very long time. And mm-hmm. and George Moran's gang killed some of Al Capone's gang to, mm-hmm. you know get rid of the truce and everything like that so retaliation yep Mm -hmm. he's the one who is the most obvious yes yes despite having been riddled by the roaring 20s gang warfare over the control of illegal alcohol distribution the residents of chicago were still shocked by the saint valentine's day massacre so although they were used to the gang violence, like this was on a whole nother level. So mm-hmm. they weren't they weren't ready for it to get to that point. No, and then this came this became world known. So I mean like it spread like wildfire. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And after the massacre, the Northside gang slowly withered and George Moran eventually retired from his life as a gangster. Al Capone's Chicago outfit became the dominant crime organization in Chicago. Now, two of the shooters, John Scalisi and Albert Anselmi, were found murdered a month after the shooting. Jack McGurn, who actually helped organize the massacre, was actually murdered on the seventh anniversary by two men using Tommy guns. I'm sure that that had some type of connection to do with the massacre Mm because he was on the anniversary with the same type of weapon used in the massacre so yeah yeah i'm sure that had some relevance to the Mm -hmm. to it Mm -hmm. al capone was eventually convicted of tax evasion and after his release he spent much of his time out of the public spotlight so he kind of retired i guess yeah Mm -hmm. yeah well i think the scenario was this is a thing where if they couldn't get him on his mob action. They were going to get him on they what they one way or another. So he kind of just laid low. So he couldn't go back to jail. And he actually spent his later years at, at his Palm Island mansion. Where he enjoyed fishing and playing cards. He had been diagnosed with syphilis in 1932. And the syphilis actually negatively affected his health um, throughout his life. And in 1947, he suffered a stroke and contracted pneumonia. His life came to an end on January 25th of 1947 at the young age of 48. So I'm sure the syphilis Mm -hmm. made it worse and ramped everything up and he was uh, surrounded by his family at the time of his death and i did read somewhere where his son was actually born with syphilis so it's Mm -hmm. an inherited trait and his son was born with it so his son would eventually grow up to get married and have four girls that i know of i don't know if he had any more after that but he had four daughters so i mean well by the time he was at an age where the syphilis was probably affecting him, they had more yeah, medicine to deal with. It. Mm-hmm. Now, despite no longer being involved in the mob, George Moran continued to live his life as a criminal. 
So he so left he just, the mob, but he couldn't leave the criminal lifestyle. Right, he lifestyle. couldn't get it out of his out of his system. Now, he actually died from lung cancer in Leavenworth, which was a federal prison, and he died on February 25th of 1957. Now, Byron Bolton was a kind of like a low-level gangster um, under, he worked under Al Capone, and he claimed to have been the lookout guy on the morning of the massacre. So he was the one who actually mistook Albert Weinshank for George Moran. He actually claimed that the hit was planned around three or four months prior to the actual shooting itself. So during this whole moratorium that he had, that they made this, you know, this this pat that they weren't gonna like mm-hmm. go so after each he other was anymore. Already he was already planning, planning it. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one other theory as to what may have happened if it was not Al Capone is that George Moran actually ordered the hit himself to uh, quote unquote clean house and the Gusenberg brothers were the ones who were the prime target as it seems like they kind of uh, did things on their own and didn't always follow what they're supposed to well, do. And then they also killed a firefighter um, at one point mm-hmm. and I, you know did this gave them a really bad yeah. So they kind of made things uh, worse for George Moran, not helped like they were supposed to be right. doing. So he may have needed to get rid of them. Another possible theory was that it was a retaliation of a crooked cop involved in the bootlegging industry. Maybe like the Northside gang was kind of getting in the way of mm-hmm. their cut in the profit. Or, you know, they were working with him and they're like, oh, we don't need you anymore. We found mm-hmm somebody else you're asking for too much money or whatnot you know right now there could be a a ton of reasons why Mm -hmm. that a crooked cop would want to kill them off in the end there were no charges ever filed and the clark street garage was eventually demolished in 1967 and today that lot actually remains empty so it's just like a empty parking lot in yeah. between like two apartments yeah so there's mm-hmm. like a grassy area and then a parking lot in the mm-hmm. back and there's an alley back there which is where this seemed to all have taken place was within that alley but the building was torn down and nothing was ever rebuilt there there's never been any there's like no mm-hmm. sign that this is actually where it happened there's no mm-hmm. you know like the city kind of just erased what yeah. happened they attempted yeah. to mm-hmm. Yeah, so we've been there a couple times, um, and... It's not exciting. It's no. literally just a parking lot. <laughs> There's nothing there. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if if you weren't to know that that happened there... You'd never know otherwise. No, mm-hmm. no but the, the building next door, so, like, you see all these pictures of it. Like, the building next door, if you're facing it, like, to the left of it, it's still... It, it hasn't been ever updated or anything like that, so it still looks mm-hmm. the same still as original. it did in 1929, mm-hmm. so... It's it's kind of it's a neat area. It's um, it's a it's a very nice area where mm-hmm. this all took place. Yeah. So it's in Lincoln, yeah, Park. by the Lincoln Park Zoo. Yeah, kind of like like right Lincoln near Park there. area mm-hmm. of the of Chicago. Yeah, so it's a nice area, more kind of upscale. Thank you for listening to Crime Night. You can find our sources on our website listed in the podcast description. You can also find us on Facebook and YouTube under Crime Night Podcast. Please join us every other Wednesday at 6 p.m. Central. Good Good night. night!